HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Nyman Ranch. I'm Paul Willis, a fifth-generation farmer and co-founder of Nyman Ranch Pork Company. Learn more about us at nymanranch.com. Yeah, this is a piece that, um, and this does happen every now and then, um, really went in a different direction than I originally anticipated. So it actually started, it's funny because it's 13,000 words, but it, it, it started as a short news bit that I was just going to do on a study. And what I started to do was just start talking to people, um, ask them, what does regenerative agriculture mean to you? This very sort of simple and straightforward question that led me to some very interesting terrain. Welcome to The Big Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Kat Johnson, HRN's communications director, and today we're asking, what is regenerative agriculture really? This question is inspired by Joe Fassler's reporting in The Counter from May of 2021. This is our last episode in a special series in partnership with The Counter, a nonprofit, independent, nonpartisan newsroom investigating the forces shaping how and what America eats. You just heard Joe talking about how he started down this unexpected rabbit hole of how regenerative ag is defined and who is deciding on the definitions. Here he is again. I was a Ted Scripps fellow at CU Boulder last year, and one of the professors I audited a course with there, um, Peter Newton, had done a research study with some colleagues of, of, of his just looking at the definition of the term regenerative agriculture. And he, he uh, approached me and was like, you know, we did the study. It's, it's interesting. Um, and I'd been thinking a little bit about, you know, kind of the squishiness of that term. And what they had noticed was that, you know, unlike organic, right, which has a legal definition, regenerative agriculture is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, and they did a specific you know, sort of quantitative analysis where they looked at a bunch of different academic journal studies and practitioner websites to just see, well, how are folks using this term? Um, and it turns out they're using it in wildly different ways. So it can mean anything from, you know, there's a lot of sort of focus on soil health, 
Um, and a lot of focus, you know, on carbon sequestration, but some people use it to mean local food or small farms or water quality or integrating animals or, you know, um, economic profitability. All these different lenses are being applied. Joe interviewed some people who didn't see this lack of consensus as a problem, since all of the practices are essentially about making food production less harmful and more beneficial. Yet Joe writes about a second parallel debate that rages behind the facade of this broad agreement. This debate is about how the benefits of regenerative agriculture are quantified and how we know what's really better and who gets to decide. This is why that study from CU Boulder is worth a deeper look. One of the main you know, things that they noticed with this study is that the definitions did tend to fall into sort of three overarching categories, um, which they called processes and outcomes, and then a combination of the two. And so that's a, sort of a fancy way just for saying some folks um, define regenerative agriculture in terms of the process you might lose use on a, on a farm. So that has to do with how you farm, you know, that could be no-till, um, you know, methods like integrated pest management, um, where you bring in beneficial insects, um, or, you know, adding sort of polyculture barriers where, you know, you're, you're having pollinator-friendly habitats. These are all about the how. And then there's a whole other different school of thought that is outcomes. And that's just like, we don't care what you do. It's just all about the benefits that we can measure. So, you know, how much carbon is in the soil? Let's just look at that. It doesn't matter how you get there. Let's just look at water quality. If it's improved, great. Doesn't matter how you get there. And then there's a third, which is kind of says that both the what and the how matter. So yes, we should, of course, try to quantify these benefits, but we also want to say that certain practices are the best way to get there, or maybe certain practices are not necessarily, you know, in the ethos for some people of regenerative agriculture. Like there's some debate about can, can GMOs be regenerative if they lead to better outcomes in some ways, or, or are they kind of, because of concerns about patenting life and corporate consolidation, all these things, are they fundamentally inherently at odds with regenerative? Um, so those are the three kind of overarching kinds of definitions we see. And there's still a lot of debate about what we should actually be looking at when we want to use this term. When The Counter published Joe's 13,000 words in May, it was bound to get people talking, especially considering the headline of the piece read, Regenerative Agriculture Needs a Reckoning. But I would say that even more important thing, and, and to me, what's key about this piece, um, as I talked more and more to, to, to people, it started really coming up. Okay, there's not just debate about this term and what it means. There is, you know, an entire universe of people who feel really excluded from the debate. Um, that's, you know, uh, farmers of color or, you know, advocates for, for farmers of color. Um, uh, folks involved with agroecology, both on the ground and in the university, um, native agronomists and farmers um, really have not been given a seat at the table, speaking generally, when it comes to hashing out uh, what these terms should mean and and how they should be quantified. And, and so that's not only um, 
sort of hypocritical, you know, when you're talking about a kind of farming that's supposed to make the world better. It, it's actually also a huge missed opportunity in terms of, um, you know, benefiting from the knowledge of folks who have been, you know, using some of these principles for a very long time. There's the folly and sort of arrogance of, um, denying those folks a seat at the table or not understanding, you know, uh, the, the benefit of a, of a larger, more inclusive conversation, I think, is is pretty astounding. Um, so part of what was really important to me in this piece was I don't just want to write a, a, a story about carbon credits. I don't. And, and then, OK, then the sort of like equity and access aspect is a different story um, and just split them in two, they really do reinforce one another. Um, you can't actually you know, achieve the environmental goals without considering and addressing the equity piece for a lot of different reasons I get to in the story. And I think that that was what was most exciting for me about putting this out. And I think some of the sources and, and different people who have written to me about the story, I think we're just really happy to see that reflected that the equity and access angle was not decoupled from the kind of carbon credits conversation, that they're all there on the same page. When we come back, we'll hear more from Joe Fassler of The Counter on the questions surrounding regenerative agriculture. My name is Paul Willis. I'm a fifth-generation hog farmer and I owned and operated the Willis Free Range Pig Farm for over 41 years. I've dedicated my life to revitalizing sustainable hog farming methods in the Midwest and moving farms away from the common industrial practices. In 1998, I established the Nyman Ranch Pork Company. I'm proud to say Nyman Ranch has since grown into a network of over 740 independent family farmers and ranchers today. At Nyman Ranch, our animals are raised with care. We believe that the quality of an animal's life impacts the quality of the meat. Our high standards were developed with the help of animal welfare expert, Dr. Temple Grandin, and are among the strictest in the industry. All of our animals live outdoors or in deeply bedded pens, and they're never given antibiotics or added hormones ever, and are only fed a high quality 100% vegetarian diet. Whether they're raising hogs, cattle, or lamb, Nyman Ranch farmers and ranchers share our commitment to traditional farming, raising livestock in the way our parents and grandparents did, and supporting our rural communities. We share a common belief that humane and sustainable methods produce the best possible flavor. Learn more about our work at Nyman Ranch at nymanranch.com. Welcome back to The Big Food Question. So we've heard from Joe Fassler about the questions surrounding what regenerative ag actually is. Should it be defined by processes, outcomes, or both? And who should get to define it? This also raises the question, will regenerative become a legal standard like USDA organic? So it's interesting to think what, what might have to come about to make regenerative be a legal standard, you know, the way that organic is. Some people argue that the whole reason we're having this debate is because the original organic, uh, national organic program standards were softened enough um, in terms of some of the things, you know, specific requirements for soil health, 
that kind of thing. That's why we're having this conversation now. Um, in other words, organic, the way it was written into law is really about what you can't do or what you can't use and lists of prohibited substances and all that kind of thing. Regenerative agriculture is really different. It's about what should you do, what benefits can you have? And if you look at organic, you know, there's arguments about what are the benefits of organic, but there's not really requirements in terms of, um, say, carbon sequestration or measurable differences in water quality. There are actually some regenerative certifications that currently exist. For example, there's regenerative organic certified for food, textiles, and personal care ingredients. The goal behind this certification is to leverage and bring together other existing high bar certifications to avoid duplicate audits or burdensome paperwork for farmers and producers. It uses USDA organic certification as its baseline. But while some people consider this a great step forward, Joe talks about how these certifications don't really take into consideration the issue of equity in food and farming. There are a few that have uh, requirements in terms of the kind of contracts that farmers sign with suppliers or, you know, labor considerations for the people who work on the farms. Um, but what they really don't question is this idea, which comes up in my piece, you know, several times that, well, 97% of the farmland is owned by white people. And if you just kind of sit with that statistic, you know, any benefit you might have or any, you know, regenerative potential that also doesn't take that on is how much is it really worth? And that's not only because it's, you know, so deeply unequal and not representative, you know, in a country that should should be doing better um, and should strive for equity there. You also simply can't, some of my sources argue, actually achieve some of these regenerative outcomes without a more equitable agriculture. And that's true because, it, you know, it's one thing to kind of, you know, just raise a bunch of commodity corn from the landscape using, you know, one guy on 400 acres in Iowa with a combine. Um, if you, if you're, what you're really trying to do is produce an ecosystem, you, you need more people, you know, you need people on the land, you need the watchful eye, you need the skills. And so the challenge isn't only can we sequester carbon, was the conclusion I ultimately came to. It's it's how can we get more people on the land and not only that, but but you know, pay them properly so that they can live joyful lives on the land in a way that serves the environmental outcomes we should all want to achieve. Joe's reporting covers a vast amount. I have to recommend that you read it in full. We'll include a link in our show notes. I asked Joe to reflect on his takeaways on reporting this piece. What did he hope journalists would keep in mind as they cover regenerative ag and policies surrounding these important issues? One thing I'd really like to see is for the people in our discipline of food journalism to be less obsessed with novelty and to ask more critical questions and to remember that our job ultimately is to provide accountability and to help make sense of complex questions for the public. And there's something very strange that happens. I think it's, it's kind of specific to food. And this may be because, you know, most newsrooms or national magazines, they don't have dedicated food journalists necessarily. Um, but a lot of that kind of that critical thinking kind of goes out the window. 
And you see a lot of industry talking points recycled and you see, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, coverage I've seen of this issue has really been like the angle has sort of been the gee whiz angle, which is like, did you know that we can um, sequester carbon using farming? Like, cool, you know, let's do that. And just sidestepping just an entire universe of like important questions about, well, how is this measured and who benefits and what are the implications of this? If like this is a, you know, the Biden administration starts a carbon bank where farmers can get paid for this, but 97% of the farmland is owned by white people. You just don't hear it. I think because, because there's this sort of, I don't know, food is just treated in this through the lens of novelty so much. And I would really like to see that change. I think the second thing I would say is that so often we are looking at environmental problems in a vacuum and just kind of looking only at through the environmental lens. And if there's anything I learned from the process of reporting this piece, which I think, you know, this was not a new revelation to me, but I think driven home in a way that will stick with me forever is the environmental issues are so, so deeply and inherently tied up with the equity issues and the two reinforce each other. Um, and often there's these sort of facile, wishful thinking kinds of stories where it's like, well, if we could all just buy organic food or if we could all just, you know, stop this practice, then like we'll have a better world. And it's way more complicated than that. And, the, and part of the reason it's way more complicated then that is because of the way that like, you know, social justice and sustainability do re mutually reinforce each other or can kind of fall apart, you know, together. And so we need to do, I think, much more critical work looking at those intersections because if we don't, we're often missing the real story. I want to thank Joe Fassler of The Counter for speaking with me about his incredibly comprehensive reporting on the state of regenerative ag in the U.S. Again, please go read his piece, Regenerative Agriculture Needs a Reckoning. That link is in our show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Check back often as we address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. If you have questions you'd like the show to answer, you can email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. The Big Food Question is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Hannah Forden, Dylan Hoyer, Matt Patterson, Luke Griffin, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. The content of this series is provided for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. You should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this content. This project is funded in part by Humanities New York CARES grant with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Federal CARES Act. This program is also supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. The Big Food Question is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.